Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome everybody, my name is Robert, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London. And we, for a couple of weeks, took a break in the book of Acts, and now we're resuming. Um, And if you're joining us for the first time, we're making our way through the book of Acts. And we've been in Acts since January, and we've been looking at the history of the early church. And today as we resume, chapter 13 is a groundbreaking chapter. And without getting ahead of myself, this is going to be a first in just another mini-series within our series called The First International Overseas Mission, Part 1. The First International Overseas Mission, Part 1. And Between chapter 13 and 14, we're going to try to break down that title. But for today's message, we're going to be looking at prophets, teachers, and a dynamic duo. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12, verse 25, through to chapter 13, verse 3, I suspect. So we're going to start looking from the end of chapter 12 and just the beginning of chapter 13 I'm start reading Acts 12 verse 25 and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John whose other name was Mark chapter 13 verse 1 now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As I said, we're going to be spending a considerable amount of time in this chapter And here we are at a significant turning point in this book. In chapter 12, we saw the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter and then his miraculous release, right? This is to be the last major reference to Peter in Acts. Apart from when he makes a brief appearance or reappearance again in in chapter 15. Here we see a distinction between Peter, from kind of Acts chapter 1 through to Acts chapter 12, and here we we see a distinction between Peter as the main character in that first portion of the book of Acts, to now seeing or beginning to see Saul, who in verse 13 of this chapter will become more commonly known as Paul. And he will be in the spotlight from now on. 
Yet as much as Saul will become very prominent, we have to bear in mind that the true main character who takes center stage in all of this book is who? The father who reveals himself through the son who leaves at the beginning of Acts and sends the Spirit. So really the Holy Spirit takes center stage, but he's just his normal, um, um, quiet and considerate and not desiring to be noticed or bigged up or elevated. His desire is to glorify Jesus, yet he is the one who is working consistently throughout the pages of the book of Acts. The last chapter concluded with the death of Herod. And if you remember, the word of God doing what? Continuing to increase and to multiply. See, and that's the work of the Spirit. In the face of, you remember the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter and what seemed to be a really disastrous situation, the Lord was still working by his Spirit. And um, hopefully we were encouraged as we looked at chapter 12. And then at the very last verse we see Luke revert back to the place he left off in chapter 11. Remember? Well, if I can't convince you, at least I'll confuse you. But God is not the author of confusion, right? So if you remember, there was a great famine back over in chapter 11. And Barnabas and Saul have taken a gift to the impoverished saints up in Judea. Now it's down on the map, but it's up because you always go up to Jerusalem. If you remember chapter 11. Actually, let me go back there. In chapter 11, at verse 29 of 30, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And if we jump over most of chapter 12, which we did, as I mentioned last time, and we land at verse 25 of chapter 12, verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned now from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. So you see that the, the, the editor of the book of Acts inserts the whole issue of of James and, and Peter and his imprisonment, and then goes back now to this issue of Barnabas and Saul returning now from Jerusalem when they had taken the relief. Now, having delivered the gift to the elders at the church of Judea, Barnabas and Saul return now back to where? Back to Antioch. Barnabas and Saul. Notice how this dynamic duo are described in Acts chapter 11. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. Chapter 30 in our chapter, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, 
He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now we're going to meet Sergius Paulus next time. But notice how the dynamic duo are described. This chapter is the last time we will see these names together in that order. From verse 7 onwards, it will always be Paul and Barnabas. Or, if you look at verse 13, now, Paul and his companions. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga in Pamphylia. You see how things are beginning to change at this pivotal section in the book of Acts. Okay. Verse 25, at the end of chapter 12, ends by saying that when Barnabas and Saul had completed their service, they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that this Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. This gives us partial insight as to why John Mark traveled along with Barnabas and Saul and then consequently became a companion, albeit for a short time, which will cause complications later on, as we will see. Nonetheless, John Mark will accompany them when they set out on their first missionary journey. Okay, so here we are, verse 1, chapter 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, Now, they were in the church, or in the church that was there were. In the church that was there were. It's very definite in the original. This church, by this time, was well established. Remembering that it was probably started by simple disciples. Remember? Disciples who had left Jerusalem, had left Judea in the south because of the persecution of Stephen and ended up coming down, even though again it's north, coming down as far as Syrian Antioch, which is distinct from Pisidian Antioch. See, there are two Antiochs. And the second will become more apparent in the weeks to come, but we're here at Syrian Antioch. Let's have a look. You can see Jerusalem down in the south, and where, because of the persecution of Stephen, as we covered a few weeks ago, they began to make their way north. So there's Antioch. That is Antioch, or Syrian Antioch, evidently because it's really close to Syria. But then we're going to look at, as I mentioned a little bit later, Pisidian Antioch, which is in another, another location. If you remember, the apostles had heard about these disciples and this new church in Antioch. And as a result, they sent who? They sent Barnabas to oversee. (laughs) They sent Barnabas to oversee this organic group that has just sprouted. In Acts chapter 11... 
verse 19 through to 26, it says, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and then ultimately Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he did what? He exhorted. He exhorted them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want you to notice that word exhort. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 31, it says, For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be what? Encouraged. And that's that same word that we saw in Acts 11 that made reference to being exhorted, being encouraged. And how did it come? By way of the use of, gift, of the gift of prophecy. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14. See, it's one of the byproducts of genuine prophecy. That is encouragement. We see from here that Barnabas exercised the gift of prophecy and another gift. Just going back to Acts chapter 11. Verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He probably needed some help. And when he had found him, check it, he had to go looking for him. And when, when you read this in, in the original language, the impression it gives is that he never found him immediately. He had to actually literally go searching for him. That gives you the impression that Paul ain't on, like, big ministry movements. You know what I'm saying? Paul's just holding it down. And he's just seeking the Lord. And I mention that because very often we get the impression that when a person gets saved, particularly when they're very gifted, they need to be launched immediately into ministry. It's not the case. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in the coming weeks. So Barnabas went to look for Saul because he couldn't find him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and did what? They taught. They taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So notice two things that Barnabas and and Saul both do at this point. They prophesy. What does that mean? Well, we're going to look at what it means. But the result of it was that people were encouraged. Because they were exhorted through that prophecy. Through that prophetic gift. And the second thing we noticed that they did was that they taught. So there you see a teaching gift. Two things. Prophecy and teaching. Barnabas functioned as a prophet small p, as opposed to one of the 12 who are big p's, right? They're big prophets in that sense, big apostles. Barnabas functioned as a prophet, small p, but also as a teacher. Saul functioned as a prophet, small p, at this point, 
But then he's going to become a big P, big A apostle, like the 12, because he becomes the 13th apostle, doesn't he? And they're particularly categorized. Saul personally met with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by Christ. Paul refers to himself as one having been born out of due season. Or, I'm one of them, but I was, just, I was just born a little bit later. I came along a little bit, a bit later than them. But he's categorized with those apostles. And in that sense, he's a big P prophet. Saul functioned as a prophet, and he also functioned as a teacher at this particular point. And this is distinctly identified in verse 1 of our text. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, the substantial church, prophets, plural, and teachers, plural. And we know that Barnabas and Saul are listed among others. Now, I don't, I don't, I've got a feeling we're not going to get to the others today. And with regard to this group, this group of leaders, imagine one church and at least five leaders it could be argued that we are not sure who functioned in which gifts predominantly. It may be that one functioned more in a prophetic gift and more in a teaching gift. We can't tell, particularly from this verse. But from other portions of the scriptures, just like the one I read in Acts 11, we see that at least this is true for both Barnabas and Saul. Right? Now, the Bible tends to put these two together quite a lot. That is prophet and teacher. Because one often is based on the other. Now you see what I mean in a minute. Okay, let's look at prophets first. There we go. Prophets, of which there are two types. Now this is important. Prophets of which there are two types. First... Those inspired to predict future events. As we saw last time when we looked at who? He came along and he said, you know what? There's going to be a famine. And he predicted it before it happened. Who was that? Agabus. We saw that in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through to 28. He predicted the future. Now, the second aspect of prophecy that's the first the second aspect of prophecy is those who proclaim the word of God very much like a preacher would do from the pulpit to speak prophetically can mean both to predict and to proclaim it's an important distinction so there were prophets but also teachers so what is a teacher well, teachers are those who educate and instruct by way of explanation. Those who educate and instruct by way of explanation. So, whereas prophets proclaim the word, teachers explain the word. You see the difference? Prophecy or preaching, it could be said, is proclamation, which is what I'm doing right now. 
Teaching, on the other hand, is explanation. And you could find that on a Sunday morning particularly, you get a bit of both. Sometimes, especially coming from my spiritual culture, I used to get a lot of preaching. But I got very, very little teaching. And it's dangerous when you go the other way, where it's just a lot of teaching and there's hardly any exhortation. There's hardly any encouragement by way of direct proclamation that stirs the heart. And the, and the two opposite extremes are churches where um, the word of God is not really expounded and explained, but you get a lot of preaching and a lot of sweating and a lot of handkerchiefs. That's one extreme. And in the other extreme, a dead, dry, husk-type churches where there's maybe three people in there. And, I mean, and they teach, but they teach like this. And there's no life. And they really don't care whether you respond or not. And they'll shake your hand at the door as you're leaving and hope to see you next week. And there ain't no life. People ain't grabbed by the throat verbally. You know what I'm saying? And caused, forced as it were even, to respond. So, that's the basic difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching, proclamation. Teaching, explanation. And we have the same today. Reflecting on the text. We have the same today in that we have prophecy two types, and then we also have teaching. But there's a problem. In some circles, the role of prophet in a predictive sense is often taken to an unbiblical extreme. Individuals regularly making predictions that are not valid. All prophecy, the scripture says in First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 5, all prophecy needs to be weighed. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, 20 through to 22, do not quench the spirit. So hey, we know from 1 Corinthians that the Holy Spirit wants to work in and through the church. He wants to speak. He wants to clarify his word. And he'll do it in ways that we can sometimes quench, and we have to be careful, particularly in conservative circles. I don't know if you know it, but you're in a conservative church. And we have to be careful where we're so like hardcore when it comes to the teaching of the Bible, line upon line, verse by verse, meticulous, meticulously we try to go through the scriptures, right? Because we don't want to leave nothing out. We have to be careful that we don't quench the spirit. And if you know, we're trying to strike that balance. We're not there, but we're trying to get there. You know what I mean? And it's for everyone's benefit. Because God wants things done in the church decently and orderly. You know what I mean? So that's our aim. But we have to be careful that we do not quench the spirit. But then it goes on to say, <clears throat> in conjunction with that, don't quench the spirit, and one of the ways you can do that is by despising prophecy. So let's not despise 
predictions. One proclamation, definitely. That's standard. We're never going to despise someone standing up and proclaiming the word of God. But we can be, we can be found guilty of rejecting or neglecting predictive prophecy. But you see, verse 21 balances it all out and says, but you know what? Test everything. Test it and then hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. You see, the point is, not everything, when it comes to prophecy, not everything that glitters is gold. In 2 Peter, check this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, oh, that's why. Turn with me to 2 Peter. All this looking up at the screen and me doing all the work. Have you got your Bible? Um, Now, I'm reading from the ESV. um, So, I hope it's not unhelpful. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now, we're going to read through the whole chapter, but relax. Because I don't have a lot of material today. Um, yet I feel like this chapter is vitally important with regard to this issue of prophecy and teaching okay so 2nd Peter 2 verse 1 but check it false prophets also arose among the people past tense right just as there will be false teachers among who you meaning who us right False prophets and false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I heard Yaakov Prash, who's um, an American Hebrew brother. He's a, he's a minister, an itinerant minister, and he can speak fluent Hebrew, and he understands Greek quite well. And I heard him define this destructive heresies as parazozuxin. And what it is, is it's laying truth real close to error. And it's a bit like Eve in the garden. Remember when the serpent, the serpent couldn't step to Adam and start questioning Adam with regard to what God said. But if you read the text in Genesis 2 and 3, if you read it carefully, who did God give the command to? He gave it to Adam directly. And we know that Eve never got it directly because she wasn't even created yet. And then the impression we get is that Adam then had to communicate to his wife, Eve, what God had said. And that marks the pattern for leadership in the church. We see Timothy make reference back to Genesis when he says that leadership is male. I don't suffer a woman to teach or preach or have authority over a man. Now, if you're new here, um, that's one of the things that we believe. Now, does that mean that women can't teach? Not at all. Women can teach based on what it says in Timothy. And in Titus, older women teach who? The younger women. And we know that, oh, we know that women can also teach children. And even youth up to a certain age. Kind of, it's hard to determine. <laughs> but I think the point ultimately is um, God spoke to Adam. And then Adam now had to communicate that message to his wife, right? In the same way, in the church, God speaks to the men, and it's the men's responsibility to now bring it 
to the women and to the children and to the other men. That's the pattern. If you, know, if you want to, at a membership meeting, we can talk about that. Or you can grab one of us afterwards if, that's, if that concerns you. Um, but back to the point, which was what? False prophets among the people, false teachers. Right, destructive heresies. The devil came to Eve and he couldn't come to Adam with a blatant, you know what I'm saying, confrontational lie. But he steps to Eve because Eve's heard it secondhand. And she, maybe he can twist her up. And he does. And the Bible says she's deceived. And what the devil done was the devil said a lot of what God said, but then he added just a little bit to it. Let's see, and that's his strategy. Particularly when it comes to false teaching. That means you can have a sandwich, like you go pret a manger, right? It's got, it's got ham and... Uh, um, I eat ham. It's got um, cheese and cucumber and tomato and all of that good stuff, right? Now, all of that is on rye bread, because you know brown bread's better for you, right? Everything brown is better for you. Rice, bread, yeah, yeah. And because we're getting really health conscious right here, isn't it? So, yeah, I'll just, I'll just add to that. Amen. It's a good thing. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And um, you get that sandwich, and it's healthy, and it will benefit you. But all I've got to do is just sprinkle a little bit of strychnine in that sandwich, and you won't even see it. You probably won't even taste it. And there's enough in there to kill you. Along with all the good stuff. <laughs> See, and that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the nature of false teaching, particularly in the church. So, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. See, prophets, teachers, you see how they're put together, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And check it, a few will follow them. No. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know what? People in the world got enough, you know what I'm saying, to, to, enough reason to throw mud at the church, right? Let's not give them any more, any more reason. Let's not be guilty and stand there and can't say nothing when they point the finger at us because we cause them to blaspheme. Verse 3, and in there, check it. See, now this is, a part, this is partially the motive of false teachers and false prophets. And look, in their greed, they will exploit you. They will rape you financially. And they do so with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And there's... <laughs> Their destruction is not, is not asleep. I mean, I look at this stuff and it makes me so angry. I just want to pick up my television and throw it out the window when I see some of these guys on television. You know what I mean? And I have to just call my, I just have to hold it down and say, you know what? Psh, Lord, help them, one, to see the error of their ways. You know what I'm saying? And help them to repent. Because if they don't, it's going to be more than TVs going through windows as we're going to see in a minute. Watch. Now, watch the four examples that Peter gives comparing these false teachers. Example number one, verse four. For if God did not spare who? 
the angels, when they sinned, you'd be like, Lord, you created all them angels and they're heavy and they're so beautiful and they're amazing and powerful. But they sinned. Okay? Well, you're God, innit? He did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them. You know, you know that word hell? I think there's about three or four words in the New Testament for hell. Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, and this word, which is the only place it's found in the New Testament, do you know what it is? It's Tartarus. It's Tartarus, and it is apparently the deepest, darkest, most gloomiest and secure place in that part of the netherworld. And it says they were committed to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, based on that verse, some demons are where? Some demons are in hell. Now, you, now, now sometimes... Okay, look. What does it say in Ephesians 6 with regard to demons and where they are? It says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. The devil's called the prince of the power of the air. Right? So we know that some demons are in hell. But the majority of them, like the devil, are where? They're right here on earth. Right here on the planet. First Peter chapter 5. Oh no. First Peter chapter 5 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful, diligent. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. We know that because we just saw him in the Garden of Eden. Roar, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And you know, it says in, is it in James? It says, how do you resist the devil? By being strong and by being firm? No. It says, submit to God. Resist the devil. Because you can't, you can't resist the devil in your own strength. I can't resist the devil in my own strength. He'll eat, me, he'll, he'll eat me up and spit me out like nothing. The only reason the devil ain't had his way with us is because God's protecting us. Look at Job. The Lord just, just lifted the protection for a minute. Wham, wham, wham. Just blow, blow, blow. Just. He, 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 he ranged an, an, an assault of an attack against Job. That would happen. Do you think the devil would tear us up in a moment? And I mean, who do we think we are? And we're going to see in a minute that these false... Because remember that the, the, what we're talking about is false prophets and false teachers. But they're arrogant. They don't see things like that. In Job, it says they make reference to glorious ones. And we're going to see it. Peter says it as well. They make reference to... The principalities and the powers. Because yes, they're demons, and yes, it's the devil, but God created them. You know what I'm saying? And in Jude, it says they bring railing accusation against them. Like, in the name of Jesus, I bind you. And We've got to be really careful with that type of language. 
But that's, a, that's another issue. Getting back to the point, we need to resist the devil, but we first need to submit to God. Spiritual warfare is not shouting at demons. Spiritual warfare ultimately is living a holy life. Resisting firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. My point is, the devil and, the, and most of the demons are right here. Thank the Lord that the Bible says in the Psalms that the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear God. I remember I was at work one time and someone said to me, oh, Rob, you know what, I need to get my, my, my daughter christened because, you know what I mean, I need, to, I need to get her protected, you get me? I was like, for real? He's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay. I said, what is christening? He went, what? I wasn't a pastor back in it. He said, what? You're christening, you don't know what christening is. I said, I said not enlighten me. Because that word ain't even in the Bible. So he was like, and he was like, oh. he was like, so, so, so he said, look, so, so then what do I need to do to protect my daughter? And, and he never even waited for the answer. He says, do, do I need to put a Bible next to her head? Do I need to put dry bread over the top of the door? If, if some of you West Indian, Caribbean, Jamaican people might know. You know, time, little time over the door. Shake some sort. And I said, you know what, fam? None of them things are going to protect your daughter from evil spirits. Let me tell you. I said, you want protection for your daughter? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, first of all, you need to get saved. That would be the first thing you need to do. You know what I'm saying? But secondly, in conjunction with turning your heart toward God, you see all them triple X rated DV, back, back in them days it was videos, because this is about 15 years ago. You see all them triple X rated blue movies that you got? You need to throw them in the bin. You see sitting down and skinning up with your virgins and bunning green with your daughter in the house? You need to stop that. You see all this effing and blinding and carrying on and having next girl on the side. All of them things, you, you really want protection for your daughter? Or is this just some kind of game? If you really want protection from your daughter, the Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear God. So, we have an enemy Let's submit to God and let's fight this good fight of faith. If the devil were in hell, as some would suggest, how could he tempt Jesus in the wilderness? And, and you can't bind him in the name of Jesus and send him to the pit of hell. God will, in time, bind him. For a thousand years. Possibly in the same place that these others are bound in Tartarus. Possibly. But the devil is busy right here on planet earth. Therefore, be sober minded. Not drunk, as some would suggest, like Rodney Howard Brown. Be watchful and alert. Not slumbering. Resist him being firm in your faith. Now, that's example number one. I'm going to summarize them in a minute. Back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the angels, we saw in verse 4. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, 
but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, herald, a preacher or a proclaimer of righteousness. He was a type of prophet in that secondary sense. With seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's the second example, the ungodly world. The third example, verse 6. If by turning the cities of where? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the third example. Turning those cities to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot... Now, Lot was mad off key, but he was righteous, and it points out the fact that we're not made righteous because of our good works. We're righteous because of faith. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul. And that's the picture of the person who's who's saved but always mixed up in stuff that ain't really good, ain't really right. Surrounding themselves with ungodly people in a fellowship sense. Not You go to work, you've got to mix with unbelievers. You know what I'm saying? We were all unbelievers. But there's a distinction. The Bible says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it's a shame to even speak of the things which they do in secret. So there's, there's, there has to be, you know what I'm saying, we spend time with unbelief, but we can't live amongst them like, I mean, that stuff that we used to do, we don't do that anymore. Yet, because we're fallen, if we get in the mix and get around that stuff, that stuff begins to pull on us again. And if you're saved, it can really mess you up. It can mess up your walk. You know what I'm saying? It can frustrate God's purpose for your life. You, like Samson, could end up dying prematurely. But you're saved. But then if you're not saved, you get around that stuff and you, you, you don't feel that pull. You love it. Like we told a story about the man who comes out of his house and he's running for the train, right? He's, he's on a mission. He's got a purpose. Work. That's where I'm going. I've got my suit on. And he comes running out the house, and as he bolts out the house, his son is playing in the mud. And as he comes running out, he trips over his son, and the man ends up in the mud. Now, the son is in the mud, the dad is in the mud, but there's a difference. One of them wants to be there, the other one don't want to be there. And that's the difference between a believer in sin and an unbeliever in sin, even if the unbeliever professes that they're a Christian. So, Lot, his righteous soul, verse 8, was tormented. How can you live amongst gays and homosexuals? Not to hate on them. Please don't hear that's what I'm saying. Because a homosexual is just as bad as a player. Man out on the road with two, three different girls. They're both the same in the sight of God in the sense that they're both sinning. I'm saying, but in the, in the midst of all of this, his righteous soul is being distressed over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, then the Lord knows, check it, even in the midst of that, it's madness. But even in the midst of that, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep that. And that's so beautiful because, even, because you know sometimes when you're in the midst of it, 
in the midst of the stuff you ain't supposed to be in and you're, 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 you're out there. And in your heart, you know, Lord, I don't even want to be here, but I can't, I, don't, I can't even see how to get back. Do you see how wonderful it is that if you're the Lord's, he's going to rescue you. Have you guys seen that thing on YouTube um, where it's this song about this girl who has a great relationship with the Lord and she's dancing with him and it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden these things just come along and begin to distract her. Alcohol, drugs, sex begin to distract her and she, and she turns her gaze away from the Lord and she gets trapped to the point where she looks like she's about to commit suicide. You know, Christians can hit that can hit rock bottom like that if they get involved in these environments and she's there and she there's no way out for her no way out for her and then you see the lord on the other side of the stage it's a play it's a drama right and he begins to pull like on this invisible rope and pull on this rope And he pulls, and as he's pulling on the rope, all of a sudden she feels this tugging. She can't get back, but she feels the Lord pulling her back. And as he pulls, and as he pulls, all of the things that that, that she's been involved in and mixed up with are holding onto her, trying to prevent her from being able to get back to the Lord. Oh my gosh, and then there's one piece, there's one part in it where he stops pulling on the rope and he just steps over and he stands in between all of these enemies, all of these, all of these forces that are ranged against this, this, this woman that she can't fight herself and he holds them back. If you've seen it, like me, every time I see it, it I, I weep. I, I've, not been, I've watched it about seven times and I've not been able to watch it and not expect, when it gets to that, and I know it's coming, it gets to that part <laughs> when I see the Lord holding back the, the realms of darkness where you couldn't do it for yourself. <sighs> Listen, we have no idea of this great salvation that we have. It says in Hebrews that we, we how do we expect to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We've got a great saviour. And if you're in his hand, nobody can snatch you out. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous. That's the flip side. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Remember, we're talking about false teachers and false prophets. Don't tell me nothing. Do you know who I am? I hear individuals referenced as his eminence. I'm like, what? I mean, I spend time now amidst Anglicans where I never used to do it before. I used to think the Anglican church was just off-key, full-stop, period. Just just light a match and just set fire to the whole Anglican church. That's what I used to think. But I've been rebuked recently attending um, a a Bible school where there's a lot of Anglicans. And some of them are good people. 
Some of them are really good people. But, oh, why did I mention that? Even with stuff like, thank you. <laughs> right, re, like reverend. I don't think that's a good title, personally. Check it. His right, honorable reverend. I'm like, hey, come on now. Surely those are titles that we don't deserve. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, we don't know that the Pope is, the whole Pope thing is off key. Pontificus Maximus. That's his proper title. You know what that means? It just means top man. That's what it means. That's what it means. You know what I mean? That is, that, that is the title that Caesar used to have. And when the Roman Empire crumbled and the Roman Catholic Church come out of the embers of the Roman, the Roman Empire, they just said, yo, all right, it's burning, but just, let's, just, let's just keep the, the title. And, he, and the Pope just assumed that title, Pontificus Maximus. So, look, them titles are not for us. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's just not enough time. These, they, have, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Individuals that you can't step to. Otherwise, henchmen will literally pick you up and carry you out of the sanctuary. Like, I mean, man, the, the man that got bodyguards. The man that got, what do they call them? Armor, yo, armor bearer. Look, I'm going to get myself in trouble, right? Bold and... Oh, look, look. Check the description. This is amazing. It's just absolutely categorically correct to a T. Look, they despise authority. You can't tell them nothing. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme, as I mentioned, the glorious ones. Whereas angels... Check it. Angels, right who are greater in might and power. They do not pronounce a blasphemous judgments, judgment against the devil or against his minions, against the demons. In, in Jude, it just says, you know what I'm saying, the archangel Gabriel, was it? Or Michael. Archangel Michael, when wrestling over the body of Moses, he just said, you know what? Fam. I mean, he's a, check it. He ain't just an angel. He's an archangel. And he's like, the Lord rebuke you. And I find that, that, you know what I'm saying, that language is safer. You know what I mean? When we're praying and we know that there's demonic influence, and I'm saying the safest prayer is, Lord, rebuke the enemy. Because if I dare to begin to do things like that, I'm, I'm stepping out into very uncharted territory. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they... Blasphemy, the glorious ones. Check it, and it, the description goes on. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught, and remember, these are the false prophets and the false teachers he's describing, made to be destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. 
They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. That means it's never, their desire for sin is never satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. You see why you need to be steady? Standing on the rock, which is Christ, and Jesus is the word of God. So you want, you want your life to be steady? You need to be standing on the rock, on the word of God. That means you need to give yourself to it. We need to give ourselves to it. So that we're not unsteady, unstable souls. They have hearts, tra- oh my gosh, it's relentless. They have hearts trained in greed. Second time it's mentioned. <laughs> and you know who trained them? Their dad. Their dad, which is the devil. I mean, you know what? Now, I, I, I'm, you'd be like, shh, Robert, man. I know it seems like I'm stepping out on uncharted territory, but I'm, I'm, only, I'm only repeating what I heard John the Baptist say. You brood of vipers. But if you call someone a snake, you know like the modern vernacular, right? People call someone a snake because they snitch and they're slippery. When John the Baptist called the scribes and Pharisees snakes, he wasn't just saying, you lot are slippery. Or even just deceptive. The snake, obviously, is a picture of the serpent, the devil. And just like their father, that's how they act. Jesus said it, didn't he? Luke 23, Luke 23, Matthew 23, Luke 23, Matthew 23. Is it Matthew 23? Is it Matthew 23? All in red, because Jesus is red, and he's blazing. It's the only people that Jesus, you know what I'm saying, you look, look at Matthew, if you've got red letter edition of the Bible, look, Matthew chapter 23, apart from the very first portion, few words, it's all in red. The Lord Jesus doesn't come up for air. It's relentless. And he says similar things to them with regard to identifying them for who they really are. And consistently, throughout the chapter, he refers to them as what? Pretenders, hypocrites. That's someone pretending to be somebody that they're not. So I'm only, I'm only, what's the word? I'm only following in the footsteps of what the Lord Jesus said and what John the Baptist said. I think they're good examples to follow. You know what I'm saying? And even Paul. Now, what what does the text say? Hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Accursed children. Remember Jesus said that to the scribes when they confronted him and challenged him as to who he was. Remember he said before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to challenge him on that. And he says, you know what, I'm not a liar like you. I do what I see my father do and say. You do what you see your father say and do. Your father, just in case it's not clear, your father is the devil. Accursed children, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. It's too much. They have followed the way of Balaam, which is our fourth example. 
the son of Beor. And this is a really banging example because if you read through, is it Numbers? You read through the Old Testament about Balaam, you'd think this brother is on point. Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain. Third time it's mentioned. This money thing in church. And he was like, look, the, the king was like, boy, I'll, I'll hook you up, Balak. I'll hook you up, fam. And he was like, boy, you know what? No, I can't do that, you know, blood. Because I can't curse Israel. They're God's people. And he's like, boy, I'll, look, look, I've got, I got treats for you. And my man's like, all right, wait a minute. Let me just go and check God again. Yeah? Let me just find out if, the Lord re- if that's what he really means. Heart trained in greed. Love gain. From wrongdoing, it says, verse 15. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke, a donkey that can't speak, spoke with human voice and restrained the, mad, the prophet's madness. Oh my gosh, verse 17. These are, check it, it's still describing false teachers and false prophets. Verse 17, these are waterless springs. How can you have a waterless spring? That's because you go there thinking you're going to get something. Yeah, I'm going to go to this, I'm going to go to this crusade and all. Yeah, looking forward to it. And you go there and you, and you get some semblance. You get me? It's like you watch a video, a big screen of Niagara Falls. But you stand there, you don't get wet. But it looks like, well, it looks like, but it ain't. And you come out just as dry as when you went in. Waterless springs. Mists driven by a storm. Clouds, in another translation, is without water. See, they get, oh, look, it's going to rain. Look, here comes the clouds. It must rain. Where are they going? Huh? And they're gone. No rain. Because it presents you to the point where you have an expectation, but then your expectation is dashed. I'm spending too much time here, isn't it? Check it. It says, if, if, if that wasn't enough, right? For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. What does the Bible say about hell? And who it was made for. That hell wasn't made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But you know what? Man who sin like the devil. Are going to join him in that same place. And I say that without trying to be funny. Because that's very serious. For speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, seemingly escaped, they are again entangled in them and overcome, Hebrews 6, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You know what? From my understanding, you know what I'm saying? I'm happy to stand corrected. 
from my understanding, individuals who seem to be saved, right, profess to be Christians, it would be better that they never started going to church or started professing that I'm a Christian, but round the back they live like the devil. It would be better that they just stayed out in the world and live like the devil. Because it says it's going to be worse for this individual. And you know why? Because they got so close to being saved. They got, they're sitting among the congregation of the righteous. Regularly. Week after week after month after year after decade. Playing church. Only to end up being destroyed. And it's a little bit like... It's a little bit like fooling around on the edge of a precipice. Don't do that. Why? It's dangerous. It's all right, man. I got it. Don't watch that. Fooling around and then all, this, all of a sudden slip, but don't fall. And like, oh, maybe I really need to stop this. See, that's the warning that comes from the Holy Spirit or the word of God. Ain't trying to hear that. I'm cool. There's a tree right there. If I slip, I just grab onto the tree, innit? Slip. Reach out for the branch. Touch the branch. But never got a grip on it and end up falling. Now imagine what it feels like to be in that descent. You're falling now. After being warned, don't know the seriousness of it, but you took it for a joke. Because you thought everything would be alright. I'm cool. It's safe. But now you're falling and all you can think about is the feeling of your fingers glancing the branch that would have saved you. That's why it's worse for that. It's not that the hell is hotter, but psychologically, it's worse for that person. Because they knew that they were, they were, they were so close but yet so far. For it would have been better for them never have known, to never have known the way of righteousness than after... T- Knowing it, to turn back from the Holy Come. See, in my understanding, this is not someone who got saved and backslid and lost their salvation. My, my, my understanding is, and like I said, I stand corrected. My understanding is they weren't saved in the first place. That's why it will go on to say in verse 22, watch, verse 21, let me finish verse 21. That after knowing it, to turn back from the Holy Commandment delivered to them... What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. The stuff that the dog vomited up. Come on now, just leave that behind. Oh, but I, can't, I can't. What do you mean you can't? Sorry, you lot go ahead. I'm going back to my vomit. The pig who's been washed and cleaned. Is always going to go back to the mud. Why? Because it's a pig. And that's what pigs do. It was a pig. It is a pig and it will continue to be a pig. So hence it goes back to doing what pigs do. You see that? You see the analogy? Is my argument. I'm presenting my argument. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you don't quote me. Well, you can quote me, but I've made it clear that that may not necessarily be the case. But that's the way I read it. That's the way I understand it. I don't believe you can lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. You backslide, you know what I mean? But like the prodigal son, you come home. 
even if the Lord, like the woman and the rope, has to draw you back. But, you know, it just makes sense. Why, why live like that? Why be, why, why? You're going to go out like Samson. Come on now. There's no legacy in that. And may God help us, especially in the light of what's been going on recently, especially those of us in the pulpit. May God help us. But may God help you too. Because you're just as accountable with regard to at least your own personal life. You know what I mean? Wow. I swore I was going to be 45 minutes today. That's why I asked Pastor P to pray for me. Because I didn't think I had enough material. Um, Four examples, right? Example number one was the fallen angels. Example number two was the ancient world, the flood during the time of Noah. Example number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was example number four? Thank you, brother. Balaam. Matthew chapter seven. Let's roll to the end. Matthew chapter seven. Let me say it like this. If you're under any illusion... Matthew 7, verse 15, says, Beware of who? False prophets. Because this is who this is really, that was talking about in Second Peter. Beware. Beware. They were back then, Peter said, we're going to have them today. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, deceptively, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And if you're under any illusion as to whether or not some of these prophets can be fake, Matthew 7 continues in verse 21 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, a few will say to me, No, it's not a few. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They call him the second time because he ignores them the first time. Why? Because he doesn't know them, you're going to see. Lord, did we not what? Prophesy in your name. He doesn't deny that they did. We cast out demons in your name. Now that's the the group that I, I, I came out of. Three, four hours, Bible study night. It's a Bible study. But we end up pinning some brother down for two hours trying to cast demons out of him and then mess up the brother's life. I know, brother, forever. One particular guy, some of you would remember him if I named him, was told that he had demons because he smoked. Smoking ain't even a sin in the sense that it's definitely not one of the commandments. It's not healthy to sin. It's madness. To, it's not healthy to smoke. It's madness. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're defiling it. But, said the brother had demons. Helen, my wife, had the same experience, not over smoking. Just had a struggle, like we all have struggles. It's just about putting the, the flesh to death. No. This particular church told her that she had demons. She was possessed. That messed up my wife's life for about two years. 
because she couldn't even go to sleep at night because she thought she had demons you can't be a Christian and have demons and obviously we don't have time to go into that but these this is the group that the Lord says sorry did you call me what me Lord Jesus says in another place why did you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say Prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name. Lord, what do you mean you don't know us? I mean, check it. Hear the arrogance. What do you mean you don't know us? We did this in your name. You're going to dare to speak to God like that, but they're going to speak to God like that because that's the way they are. We We just saw the clear description of them in 2 Peter. And we've done many works, many mighty works. In your name. It's like we've done all this for you and you're so ungrateful. And then the Lord says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not, and again, this whole losing your salvation thing. He doesn't say, I used to know you, but you flopped. You backslid and you lost your salvation. He doesn't say that. He says, I never knew you and me were never in any kind of relationship, regardless of what you may have thought. Is it in Galatians? It's not so much that you know him. The question is, does he know you? See? Work out your own salvation. How? Not arrogantly. Yeah, what? This is me. I'm this, that, and the other. Bow before me. In the name of Jesus. No, you're arrogant. Depart from me. And he identifies them clearly. He says, you're workers of lawlessness. That is, those who practice sin as a lifestyle. See, if you're saved, you will sin. But like you always hear, if you're saved, you're supposed to sin less. You're not sinless, but you should sin less. We don't practice sin as believers. You know what I mean? You fall and you, have, you stumble. But woe be unto you if you're practicing sin as a lifestyle. I mean, like the Bible says, Galatians 6. God says, don't, don't be deceived. God, I'm not mocked, says God. You think I don't know? God says, do, be, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Um, so, he says, you're workers of iniquity, workers of lawlessness. You're practicing sin as a lifestyle. Now, the context, now, Matthew 24, nearly finished. You guys all Okay. Wow. Matthew 24. The context is the last days. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, that is the Lord Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, like disciples do, quiet time, go seeking the Lord, right? They came to him privately saying, tell us, the crowd's gone. You said some things. Lord, what did you really mean? When will these things be that you were talking about? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, why would he say that? 
One, because it's a sign, as Harry said. But two, because you need to be aware that you need to be aware. See that no one leads you astray. For many, there are many many's in the scripture. I wish there were few, fewer many's and more few, few, few. But no, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They come saying, Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. That's what they come saying. But if you look carefully, you can see the, the sharp teeth behind the, the, the sheep's hood. Jesus. <laughs> For real, bro. In the Italian suits. For many will come in my name saying that I am Christ. And they will lead many astray. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. This is... We're going to, may God help us one day talk about who is going to be our greatest enemy if we are around in those penultimate last days. You know who our greatest enemy is going to be? Our quote-unquote brothers and sisters. Exactly. See? Snakes. Nothing don't change. It's nothing new under the sun. They will do Judas, isn't it? False Christian. Professing Christian, I'm a disciple. Hey. Even the disciples didn't know that he was a fake. That he was a snake. Because they were like, Lord, who's going to deny you? They didn't know. Judas. For what? Thank you for peace. For money. You see, how, you see how consistent it is? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, just like Saul did before he was converted. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many, because they're not founded on the rock, because they're unstable and unsteady, many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and do what? Deceive. Lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. As we've been seeing in the book of Acts, verse 14 shows us that the mission is still being fulfilled in the last days. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Remember? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The book of Acts doesn't stop. We're still outliving by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Preaching that message as a witness, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Verse 24, Matthew 24. Sorry. 24. For false Christs. Check it. The word Christ means what? Um, <clears throat> Apostle is a sent one. Christ is the same word as Messiah in Hebrew. Christos in Greek, and it means anointed one. So, false Christ could be uh, a picture of someone pretending to be Jesus, like David Koresh, 
these guys are few and far between. Anyone come and says they're Jesus Christ, come on now. And yet you've got people that followed him. And most of the people that followed him, you know what denomination they came out of? Seven-day Adventism. Check it out. For false Christs or pretended anointed ones. Like, yeah, I'm going to see my man. What? Yeah, that anointed man of God. Like, yeah. But what did you say? He's a fake. How dare you touch the Lord's anointed? See? False anointed ones and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. At the moment, they can't blow the fuzz off a peanut, right? Because none of them things that happen are real, right? Yet, there's coming a time, particularly when the false prophet, the ultimate false prophet, in conjunction with the Antichrist, they're going to be pulling real stunts. And if people are hoodwinked and suckered in now, oh my God, oh my goodness, can you imagine what it's going to be like then? False Christs and false prophets will arrive and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray or deceive, remember Eve, if possible, even the elect. If possible. Now, that's something to talk about. See, Jesus says, I've told you. I've warned you beforehand. Now, there are many in our day that fall into these categories. That is, deceivers and the deceived. And very often the problem starts where? False teaching. False teaching. From the false teachers and the false predictions that they make are then a result or a byproduct of the false teaching. As I said at the beginning, that's the root of it. And I'm saying, um, your practice is affected by your beliefs. So there were at the church at Antioch, thank the Lord, genuine prophets who predicted and proclaimed the word. And there were also teachers who explained the word. A preacher will teach, but that is not his main aim. His main aim is to herald or to proclaim the preacher. A teacher, on the other hand, is proclaiming, but his main aim is to explain. Both are important and vital to any local church. Listen to Ephesians 4. Man, I kept you over an hour. I might have just done it now. Ephesians 4. And he gave some, that's the Lord Jesus. He gave the apostles. See, I remember in New King James, that's what I'm quoting, right? He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. And he gave the apostles, the who? The prophets. The evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To fleece the flock? No, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Whose job is it to do ministry? Just the pastors. You see how we need, we need a radical 
transformation. We need a revolution. We need a reformation. And I mean, before we start saying, Lord, we want a revival, we don't, we don't even know what that means. Because when we say we want a revival, we're talking about seeing people who are dead to God, Ephesians 2, right, come to life. When really a revival, you can't revive something that's dead. You can only revive something that was once alive. So the revival is, we're the ones that need reviving. You know what I'm saying? And then as a byproduct, you know what? People will begin to hear it because we'll be so filled with the Spirit. We'll be so filled with God's Word. We can't do anything but, you know what I'm saying? But gossip and share the, the, the gospel in that sense. See? But it's, look, it's for all of us. We, m- part of my job is to, is to equip you. Part of Pastor Patrick and Pastor Ephraim's job is to equip you as a church, as, as the body of Christ, so that, because check it, so that you can do the work of them and check it. I wasn't born a pastor. I wasn't born again and then I'm a, I'm a pastor. It didn't happen like that. I got saved and I was a baby on milk and I began to grow and I began to develop in my Christian life. And over a process of time, here we go, 15 years later, I become a pastor. It's a process. But I was once where you are, you know what I'm saying? Hopefully in the next year, can I get an amen? In the next two, five, ten years' time, you guys will be doing different things. You will be more responsible. You will be more accountable. It's no joke being a pastor when you're a joker. But that's the responsibility that the Lord has given me. You know what I'm saying? And I'm saying that God wants to give you responsibility. That's one of the reasons why we're bringing in this membership team. We're putting it on you. Because it's good for you. It's exactly what the Lord wants for you. Even though you may not want it yourself. And I'm saying, but my point is, we all need to grow because we are all involved in the ministry. Every single last one of us, as he goes on to say, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children... It's good to be a Christian baby if you've only been saved for six months. But if you're still a baby after being a Christian for ten years, something's wrong. Being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Again, false teaching. If you're not... By craftiness in deceitful schemes. And and like I said, since we're in membership mode, I'll read verse 15 and 16. Did I put it up there? Sorry about that overheads today. Not with it. Verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. I heard Pastor Ephraim say at school last week, referring to the workings of a team. He said to the youths, because they was kicking off and just going crazy, fighting one another and madness and we're all supposed to be a team he said a chain is as strong as its weakest link a chain is as strong as its weakest link and that's true of us and people have reneged on their responsibility yeah I know man stuff needs to get done but sure someone else can do it now we don't say that but that's what's in our heart now when we do that the whole thing breaks down 
until you can grow at least a group who are serious and then you can begin to build verse 16 from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the broad body grow so that it builds itself up in love okay what we're going to do is we're going to pick up from here next week um as we're introduced to these prophets and teachers more fully. Amen? Okay. Father, even as I say that, uh, I'm reminded that you've brought us into your family, that we are children. So as many as received him, that is Christ, to them... You gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. Father, we're, we're able to call you Father, Abba, because of what Christ did for us. And the more we think about that, the more we're humbled. The more our arrogance is bruised and broken. The more our pride is shattered. As we think about the fact that there's nothing that we've done to deserve your mercy. We deserve judgment. And on that basis, we're grateful that we can call you Father. And we do it carefully, knowing that it was, it was blood bought our possession and our position. And it was the precious blood of Christ that far exceeds any gemstones, any precious metal, it's nothing that money can buy. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, this afternoon for bringing us into your family. And, Lord, as we hear those words of Second Peter, it's terrifying. It makes us tremble, Lord. And we're saved. Yet, Lord, I pray that it would be the others that would tremble, those who are not working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, those who are on TV. Lord, those who have a responsibility, Lord, to feed the sheep. Father, they're fleecing the sheep. Lord, I pray that you just bring a leveling. Lord, just like those in Scripture who are unfaithful, Lord, who... You personally deal with, Lord. I pray that you do that, Lord. And I ask that you do that, one, for their own sake. That you break their legs, Lord. If they're sheep that are going astray. Break their legs, Lord. And humble them. If they're saved and they're going on like that. But, Lord, if they're not saved, I pray, Lord, for the people's sake. People are being deceived. And, Lord, I ask that also, in conjunction with that, you'd raise up godly prophets. Godly apostles. Godly missionaries, that is, sent ones. Godly pastors, godly shepherds, Lord, who will, t who will, who will feed the sheep, who will, who will speak the truth in love in order to warn, like you said, Lord Jesus, to your disciples, beware, Father, that you'd raise up in, in, in rapid succession, Lord, even from our midst, Lord, men and women, Lord, who would take the responsibility that others evidently are not taking for those who can't take it for themselves. Lord, that you'd raise up individuals, Lord, that will combat the error. 
But Father, that individuals would be caused to, to take your word seriously, Lord, and teach it honestly. And um, in order that you might be glorified, that you might be pleased. For Jesus' sake.